I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our crazy dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 424 for Tuesday, October 15th, 2013. On today's show, trumpeter Ralph Alessi. As you know, this show is back because of Kickstarter and the folks who contributed to the Kickstarter campaign. And over the next several shows, I'm going to read you some of their names. You know, as a matter of fact, there I have two... Very talented assistants here who maybe could help me read these names. Would you guys come on over? <laughs> yes, they're both deathly ill. So let's see if we can make it without either of you collapsing because of your horrible, horrible infectious diseases. Okay, so this is the list of names. So we'll just we'll just go each of us, okay? Uh, so I'll start. Patrick Cornelius. Greg Bell. And... Braithwaite. Nice job. Cynthia Hugan. Ken Juker. Natalie Cressman. Paul Jones. RKRS. Who I don't think is a hip-hop DJ, but that's just how he put his name in the Kickstarter. Wiki Man. Oops, sorry. Jason Parker. Talia Billig. Joanna Woolswitch. Wallfish, yep, very good. Evan. Renee. Jeff Coffin. Anthony Prog. Dalton Ridenauer. Glenn Zelski. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> There's some, there might be some uh, third base coaching going on there. Uh, who are we at here? That's you. Amy Crawford. John Edwin Mason. Matthew Kaminsky. Kaminsky. You know what he does for a living? He plays organ for the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, I know. Uh, this one's hard. Nikki Schreira. Michael Feinberg. You can just say Bob for that one and his last name. Robert J. DeRosa. Ro- Carlos Ibanez. Brian Shapiro. Lance Harris. Chris Monson. Hans Niebuhr. Paul Fredman. Paul Friedman. Nice job. Wow, you guys are really good at that. Thank you very much. You know what? You, we don't have to be done, though, because there's even more members we can thank, since you're right here and you're doing so well. In addition to the Kickstarter people, and those are the folks who help bring the show back, you can also join the Jazz Session for 5 bucks a month. And if you do, you get free MP3s. If you join today, I think you'll probably get eight when all is said and done. Yay. Pretty cool, right? Bunch yeah. of free stuff. Uh, you you guys don't get any. What? You're my kids. I mean, I'll give them to you. Yeah. You don't have an MP3 player. What are you so excited about? I don't. I want an MP3. All right. Well, we'll we'll work on that later. But anyway, let's let's. You said you'd give. Yeah. Let's. No, I didn't say I'd give you an MP3 player. I said I'd give you MP3s. That's an that's an entirely different thing. That's the files themselves. (laughs) You guys are hard bargainers. But here we go. Let's thank the people who became members since the show started again. Mike Wilson. Um. Lance Harris. Peter D. Baker. I think it's Peter DeBacker, but I could be wrong about that. Daryl Sean. Mike Watson. Kyle 
Quas. Quas or Quas. I've never heard it said out loud. Uh, oh, this is a tough one. Oh, this Carlos Cambria. I think it's Coimbra. No, I think it's Cambria. Well, I would think it was Cambria, except that it doesn't have any of the vowels that you're saying. Well, then, <laughs> don't judge me. Thank you, guys. That's Oh, you guys want to introduce yourselves? Well, you already introduced yourselves in the beginning of the show. I'm Bernie. I'm John! Oh, As you all would okay. like to know, that's me, okay? Get lost. I'm famous! Get, I'm the famous John Green. Guards. <laughs> Thank you. If you'd like to donate and have I'm your... Your name read by some obnoxious children. You can uh, click the donate button at thejazzsession.com. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. Please rate the show in iTunes. You can give it a five-star rating if you think that's appropriate. And also, of course, re- leave a review in iTunes. And if you have anything you want to say about this episode, just go to thejazzsession.com and leave it in the comments under this episode. On today's show, we're going to talk with Ralph Alessi. I had a chance to sit down with him in Brooklyn not too long ago and talk about his new album, Baida, his first as a leader for the ECM Records label, although, of course, he's had many other albums as a leader on other labels. Here's some music from Baida. In fact, this is the title track, and then we'll hear my conversation with Ralph Alessi. My guest is trumpeter and composer Ralph Alessi. It's uh, so great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. You've just released uh, not your first album as a leader, but your first album as a leader for the ECM label called Baida, um, which uh, seems like probably a long time coming where ECM is concerned, and it's uh, it's exciting that you're out there as a leader. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this band. The, you guys have appeared three times on record together, if I'm right. True. Um, and it really seems now like a just an incredibly fully formed, sympathetic collection of people. Can you talk a little bit about the people who are on this record with you and, and how you chose them? Sure. Uh, it's Jason Moran on piano, Drew Gress on bass, and Nasheet Waits on drums. And uh, what I could say is that the first time we played together, which was for that, that record of mine called This Against That, uh, it was a two-hour session, and it was an idea to record some tracks for the record uh, that had uh, the main band was basically those guys, but David Gilmore instead of Jason. But I wanted to do a few tracks with Jason. And literally, there was no rehearsal. Um, 
that was a period where I was I did a few of my records actually at my apartment um, that uh, Robbie Coltrane recorded recorded actually who was an actually uh, an absolutely amazing engineer um, a little uh, 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 he probably doesn't want me to tell you this but um, on the records uh, he's listed as uh, the engineers listed as Bobo Feeney. And uh, it's actually Ravi. So you know what? At this point, shot the funk name or whatever. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you know what? Um, you know, uh, he, he he might be uh, angry with me. That's okay. No one listens to the show, anyways. There you go. There you go. Totally, right, right. Totally anonymous. These mics aren't 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 on <laughs> That's anyway. That's exactly right. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so we were doing those records at my place. They were very informal. So um, we had a couple hours to record, and those guys recorded and. They literally sight-read the music, um, and they were instantly plugged into the music, and we all played together in a certain way where it just felt great from the first second. And it's always been that way uh, with us. Uh, we haven't played that much, really, cumulatively over the years. But every time it feels like we've had we've had a long history of playing together. Um, the way the record came about was that someone from ECM came to our uh, gig at the Jazz Standard in 2010 and really liked the music. I didn't really hear anything after that. And out of the blue, I was doing a record at Systems 2, looked at my email and said, hey, Manfred wants to record the band. So um, that's how it happened. Is that that occurrence of people getting together for the first time to sight-read the music and it feeling that way, is that rare enough that you can remember those occurrences, or is that is that something that happens fairly commonly in your experience? I think there are a community of musicians in New York and elsewhere as well that are able to do that. Um, maybe it's just the where things are at nowadays with musicians and the training that people get where people are better readers than they used to be, but that's coupled with these amazing improvisers that can basically do it all. They can, they can take a look at a piece of music and understand what's there or have a process to learn it as they go, but can also bring their sensibilities to it immediately. So these guys are no exception to that. Um, but there are, there are others. Uh, it's, it's really an amazing time right now. Um, in that respect, um, I think culturally too, since people are always on the go, people have less and less time to um, to do things, and one of those things would be rehearsing music. So um, it's actually uh, very uncommon to rehearse more than once for a gig or a record. Um, so uh, those guys are, yeah, those guys are an, an extreme extreme case of that, where you could really bring some music in and immediately record it or perform it yeah because it seems to be it's not just that they're technically proficient enough to play the music but mm -hmm. that they also are plugged into the music i think to use your phrase right yes and i think it really it really boils down to ears and uh musical sensibilities and creative energy and they all have that uh so if you go if you go back and listen to those tracks on that record i think there were i think there were three that we released. There were a couple of others that we, that were actually sounded good as well. Um, there's just a comfort and fearlessness that they had playing that music in that situation. 
And there's never, there just, just never seems to be a thought where any of those guys are concerned about any, anything. And those are the people I like to make music with. And those are the people I like to, like to be around as well. does it mean to you as a as a writer as a composer to not have the luxury of you know we're going to go on the road for six weeks and then make an album when you know you're going to have maybe one rehearsal before the album what does that mean in terms of what you bring into the studio with you and what you can do from a compositional standpoint um well you still have to know the band that you're writing for so you know i definitely have that in mind and i think a little differently about those guys than i do with the other band in mind this against that and has uh a few uh, different players. Um, but, yeah, with this particular band, you can't really go wrong. They're also, those guys are also very, very open to anything. I really appreciate that because I have a lot of different interests. And sometimes when you, um, I don't know, when you're in musical situations, I, th I think you get the sense sometimes that maybe sometimes players have you know, a little bit of a bias against certain types of things. Um, so that might force you to edit out some things. Uh, but as I said with these guys, it, they're open to absolutely any, anything. Yeah, you're definitely a player. You said the thing about having a, a varied array of interests, and you're definitely someone, I mean, I, I've heard you in so many different contexts over the years, and you seem equally comfortable in all of them. But when it comes time to record for, for Manfred and ECM, does that... Does that mean you're going in a particular direction, just given the the kind of cultural weight of the label and what's what it's produced so far? It was definitely part of the equation in terms of what I was what I brought to that session. Uh, but by the same token, we we already had a body of work. Um, sure, we, we had we we had we had built up up some things over the years. Even you know, give, given our lack of performance situations, we still were getting into some music and had developed some things. So. Uh, a, a good chunk of that music that we recorded had been played before by us, but I definitely did want to uh, write a few new things. Um, actually, the title track by it uh, was new, and I, I think I, I definitely had that in mind for for uh, you know doing the record on ECM. Uh, although that particular track or that particular composition went through a couple of different 
revisions as we got closer to the uh, to the session. Um, and yeah, and and the flip side of that was there were a couple of things that we have played in the past, and I just didn't feel confident uh, about that music uh, being part of that record. Um, maybe another time, uh, but by the same token, Manfred was pretty open to everything I brought in. Uh, we had probably around eight or nine things that we recorded, and then I had some other things that I brought in just in case. And then there was a moment where I said, hey, Manfred, I have some other things that I want to try. And by that point, I just felt very com uh, comfortable and confident that, I don't know, there was an openness there. And he was, at by that point of the session, he was so into what we were doing, and he said, yeah, let's keep going. What else do you have? Uh, so there were a couple of tracks on the record that I wasn't sure that uh, th those would be part of the mix, and they ended up being on the record. It's the tune called Shank, which is a straight-ahead tune, and um, you know we did a couple takes of that. And they didn't—they weren't really different than what we've been doing. Certainly, you could you could say stylistically they sounded different, but it was still the same type of music making that was that was going on. I think I think Manfred uh, recognized that. Is there any kind of, um, I don't know, thematic seems too strong, but is there any kind of thread or through line that runs through the compositions on this record or some kind of compositional goal that you had or vision that you had for this film? Uh, I wish I could say that because <laughs> uh, actually the, the, what comes to mind since we're talking about ECM and that idea of a, of a concept for a record, um, the only other ECM record I've been on was a Michael Caine record called Circa uh, uh, in, from 1996. And... He had an idea that this, the, the, the music that he was making was somehow reflective of his childhood growing up in Las Vegas. Now, I don't know if he was thinking that as he wrote it or that was something after the fact that he kind of thought would be something that made sense to him. Um, um, but no, it, it's basically the, the way we made this record was the way I've always made records, basically, you know, bring in some music, get the right players, 
And then when it's all said and done, you start shaping it. And it's worked for me fine. But as I've gotten older, I would like to actually do a record like that. I, it would be kind of cool to to take on that challenge. But no, the the only thread is that it's all my music and it's all of us playing it. And somehow it always works out. Getting away from the concept of the entire record having a theme, there certainly are some tunes that come out of personal experience. There's one on here that's dedicated to your mom. And uh, we don't have to spend much time in the past, but since this is your first time on the show, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could say a few things about your folks who it seems like must have been an influence on the person you became musically as well as just as a human being. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they they were very, very musical people. They were all about music, and I think they just basically, especially my dad, I think he he was kind of old school where he was, he would, it, it was kind of his mindset that he was going to lead me forward with an idea as to what I was going to do. <laughs> it wasn't the new style of parenting where, you know, you say, hey, you know, you should do what you want to do and whatever makes you happy. Um, and early on, he more or less had decided that I was going to play the trumpet, although I, I didn't have any problem with that. Um, but yes, they, they came from a classical background, very different um, than what I ended up doing. Um, but very supportive, very loving. Um, I think the only thing with my father and probably my mother as well, that they were just concerned that I would <laughs> I was going to be able to support myself and have a life doing this. And, uh, you know, they had a point. <laughs> it's not, not, not an easy road. But, um, yeah, they were they were really great. And, you know, I've been giving several interviews about the record. And I was... Uh, telling someone the other day that there were, there, there were definitely moments uh, when all of us were practicing at the same time. I didn't mention my brother. My brother is principal trombonist in the New York Philharmonic. So there were literally moments where you had, um, um, you know, four crazy, insane classical players uh, practicing at the same time, making lots of noise and and a dog howling and barking. It was, you know, not a quiet upbringing, despite it being a small family. Um, but yeah, they were they were very supportive of what I was doing, and fortunately, um, they were both able to see me do more things in my career. And uh, my mother was able to actually hear the music, some of the music. Uh, she passed away maybe a week after uh, after that. Um, but I was able to put some headphones on her and she listened to the music and I didn't even know she was awake. That was, that was, uh, around a time when she was, you know, just sleeping all the time, not waking up. And I was able to get her to wake up to say hi to me. And I say, Hey mom, I recorded, just recorded this record. Uh, would love for you to hear it, put the headphones on her. And, um, uh, I actually didn't expect her to even react. You know, I took the headphones off her, her eyes were still closed and, I, maybe I said, you know, I hope you liked it, Mom. And she said, gorgeous. You know, she just said that to me, which was really, really very special. One of those moments you'll never forget. Um, that was, that was really, really nice. And it's the last thing she ever said to me. So, um, that was, that was really nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, my, my, my folks were great. My, my brother, of course, was playing. Uh, music on a on a high level, so I you know you you know the way it is when you have an older brother, you want to be like them, and 
I was definitely checking out all his records and he was into jazz a little bit. So, um, so there was a pretty serious musical environment, uh, in my, my house growing up. And so how did you end up as the, the jazz sheep of the family? Well, I had an interest in it. Um, and I had, my father had a, a student of his, my father was trumpet player and, and teacher of mine for, for years. And there was a point where he said, Hey, I want you to study with this student of mine. I didn't know anything about this guy. I'm not even sure why my dad thought of that. Um, uh, cause it's not like he articulated that to me. That's, you know, he, I don't remember him saying to me, you should learn how to play jazz or whatever. So this guy had, uh, had trans transcribed a bunch of Clifford Brown solos. And I, I remember that moment when we put on the record of Clifford Brown playing something. I can't remember which tune it was, but we had the transcription there and I was looking at it and I was listening to the music and it was amazing. The trumpet playing was amazing and the way it sounded was amazing. And then he said, you know that he's improvising. I said, what's that? He said, he's making stuff up. I said, what? Uh, and, and really, uh, you know, at that moment, that was completely mind-blowing to me. Um, so I guess that was the first time where I had some type of idea or knowledge of what improvisation was. Yeah. What age are we talking about here? Oh, I was probably around 13 or so. So from that moment, I had a little bit of interest and probably started to dabble with Music Minus One records, uh, you know, when I was in high school. And uh, But it definitely wasn't a serious thing for me. It wasn't until... Uh, I was probably mid twenties until I really got serious. Um, I'd gone to three different schools, three different colleges. It wasn't until I got to Cal Arts where um, things really changed for me, and I actually changed from being a, um, a classical trumpet major to a jazz major. Um, and Charlie Hayden was there at that time. Charlie Still Hayden. Right. Charlie was there. Uh, James Newton. Um, some other great teachers, and lots of great. Uh, uh, students who I, I've continued playing with and continue being friends with. Uh, but it wasn't until around mid-20s when I started to get really serious and I started to think, well, actually, I think I'd like to do this. And I started to have more confidence that that's what I should be doing. But it took me a long time to believe that. So I was thinking myself... What was myself, your direction up to that point, up to when you got classical, to Classical, classical trumpet. Trumpeter? Yeah, yeah. That 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 seed was was planted in me. Uh, early on, so it took me it took me a while to disengage from that thought. Uh, so I, I was thinking of myself as a late bloomer in a lot of ways.
What was it about CalArts that, that pushed you in that other direction? The type of music we were making. Um, uh, also an emphasis on composition. Um, there were a bunch of students there that were older than me that were really great composers writing great music. and, and But also just the way we were improvising there, just the spirit of what improvisation was there as opposed to the other schools I went to and just my general idea of improvisation was very different there. Uh, in, in what way? Can you say Well, there was, there was a heavy dose of, of free improvisation that was going on there. I was playing in Charlie Hayden's ensemble and we played a bunch of Ornette's tunes and that was, at first, was very disconcerting and very, it was very uncomfortable for me to deal with that because it was, just felt very foreign to me and eventually that yielded to me just loving that way of making music and that way of improvising. Um, so, yeah, it was it was the type of music, but it was the community of uh, of musicians and friends that that I that I met there that made me want to continue that. It just seemed seemed like it would be a complete lie to leave that place and not continue what I had started there uh, with with these these other individuals and the, the relationships that I developed. Um, so kicking and screaming in a way, I, I, I moved to New York. I didn't really want to do that. Um, in a lot of ways, I just felt intimidated by the idea of living in New York. I was a California guy and, you know, I, I think I just had an image of New York in a certain way that just didn't seem like it was going to agree with me. Um, was this in the late eighties we're talking about or? I left, uh, uh, you know, 1991. 91? Okay. 1991. Uh, so, um, yeah, so Cal, so Cal Arts was, was pretty much, um, you know, the game changer for me, um, just in terms of me really, really wanting to do this. And upon your arrival in New York, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in people who just show up here one day. What did you? What did you do when you got here? What, I mean, was it as, was it what you thought? How was it different if it was? Um, it was pretty much what I thought it was going to be in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, and, and the struggle that I was going to go through, I mean, that, that was pretty palpable. Um, it was a hard first four years or so. Uh, I was doing a lot of gigs that I didn't really want to do, but I had to pay the rent and, you know, but kind of kind of struggled in that respect. But was starting to play a little bit. Um, you know, had a band with Ravi and some other friends, friends of mine, Scott Colley, and that was fun. And there were definitely some creative things that were making me happy. Um, but it wasn't until 1995 that I started playing with Steve Coleman, and then things started to go in a different direction for me. Can you talk a little bit about that, your association with Steve Coleman? Sure. Uh, well, Steve is, I guess you could say, uh, in a, in a way, you know, me doing a record on ECM is, uh, is something I never imagined would happen. And same thing with playing with Steve. Steve is someone that I really admired and admired his music when I was younger. And, uh, 
definitely was one of those guys. If you ask me, who would you like to play with? Steve was one of those uh, people. Um, and uh, I played in his band, and some of his different bands for, I guess, about six years. Uh, and I tell people a lot of times it was like being in school for me. You know, a lot of ways I wasn't really ready to play in his band, but uh, I got better, or at least it became clear to me what I needed to do, uh, what I needed to work on. So I think by the time I, I left, I left his band, I was about 2000. I think I'd gotten, gotten better as a player, uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing being around him. Um, you know, just in terms of, I don't know, just being next to him as a, as a player. Um, there was nothing he couldn't do as a player. Um, and a lot of times people, talk about him as being a cerebral player and he's definitely an intellectual but he's also a really really uh, intuitive player as well he has amazing ears and you know he can pretty much deal with anything um so that was great um and i learned a lot um in terms of uh, you know aspiring to be a certain type of improviser but also you know elements of composition as well i learned about as well It's interesting. It seems like there are some signposts uh, along the path that you've been describing from, you know, do you realize this guy is improvising listening to Clifford Brown mm-hmm. to the free thing at Cal Arts to then, mm-hmm. you know, Steve's thing, which is a whole, I mean, a very well thought out system in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Absolutely. It sounds like you're kind of throughout your life, you're constantly being exposed to, oh, and here's another new way to think about making music. Mm-hmm. And now let me incorporate this. Is that a fair? Oh, yeah, concept? for sure. Yeah, I've been I've been really fortunate to come into the orbit of these different uh, improvisers, composers. Um, so from that point, um, you know, playing with Steve led to other things. And I mentioned the, the Michael Caine record. That Michael Caine record directly uh, led to some other things, one being an, an associate with, association with Fred Hirsch, um, who heard the record and... Um, 
contacted me and right around that time he, he was really interested in playing with different people uh, you know that's just the way Fred is he just just has that great spirit about him he just decided you know what I really want to there's certain players I want to play with so he, he would invite people to his place just to play sessions and, and, and for us it was just playing duo um, so so that record led to that but uh, also can't remember how Uri Kane um, contacted me but it might have been because of that record or playing with Steve uh, but I was really lucky because I, I just had this nice momentum that was going on one thing was leading to another and it was uh, it was giving me the opportunity to meet these amazing musicians and as you said yeah you, you're you're really influenced by them in different ways and they all kind of open you up As you listen to the way that you play the trumpet now uh, on Vita, for example, do you hear things that that go all the way back to your earliest days as a classical player? Are there things about your sound that you think stem from that early that early training? Well, it's more than early. I mean, it sounds like it lasted into your twenties. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I said, you know, I, it, it took me a while to transition from being from being a classical player, and with that, there's a kind of sound. There's a way of dealing with sound as a classical player. So, you know, it took me years to try to get to that. Um, but then, as I said, as I moved into this other realm of music making, I had to try to get a grip on that because that kind of had its own, uh, how could I say this? You know, I was, I was, I was, I was playing in a way where I couldn't, I, I couldn't really control, you know, it was just sort of this thing that I had established for playing the trumpet. And as I got more into playing jazz, I realized, hmm, I have to be a lot more mindful about how I'm dealing with sound. And uh, I really had to address a lot of different things. But yes, as I, you know, I try, I try not to uh, suppress the things that are in me as a musician. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe over the years I've, I've developed something, maybe you could call it some type of hybrid sound that has traces of classical trumpet playing in it, if you will, but you know, ho- ho- hopefully it has the, uh, the, uh, the vibrations and sounds and colors of, you know, something we associate with, with as a, as a jazz player. Um, 
but uh, I definitely, yeah, I definitely hear hear those influences in in sound, but also in content of what I play. I'll, I'll, you know, I think I've I've definitely been influenced by trumpet etudes and things like that. That you know, na- now that I'm at the age of fifty and I'm teaching more trumpet players these days, I'm realizing how important that is. Uh, as something that really forms you as a musician because you really have to deal with playing melodies a certain way with certain musicality and all those types of things. So I think it's all, it's all part of me. So I, I, I try to, as I said, I try not to suppress it and I try to work with it and make something out of it. Just to go back a few minutes to something you said, it, it feels almost counterintuitive to me that the classical side of your playing or that when you, started to become a jazz player, you thought you needed more control than the classical side. Because it seems to me that, and I know nothing about classical trumpet playing, but it, just what I can imagine with my own brain, it strikes me that classical trumpet playing would be significantly more controlled or more specific. Like the, the, the result, the product that you want is incredibly specific. Whereas in jazz, it's, it would feel to me like you would have more freedom to go anywhere. But maybe I'm misunderstanding the way you're using control too. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess what I mean is... Um... To to in in the realm of 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 classical music, you have a sound. It's just a, it's just a a tangible thing. That in fact in fact um, I remember I remember teaching a lesson to someone a couple of years ago. We were talking about sound, and I was asking him, "How do you feel about your sound?" It's like, "Well, I have a nice sound." It's you know, but it sounds like it, it, it's. I think I think there's a thinking in that realm of it's just this one thing that sort of just sits there. It's not very, it, it can be expressive, but since the music is not really about improvisation, there's only so much you're, you're asked to do uh, on the instrument. There's a very tangible style to play in. Um, so I think I just had that type of sound, but I think you have to be a lot more active with sound and how you, you're dealing with, with sound, um, in this type of music, um, since you're asked to spontaneously compose, um, I don't know. It just got, it, it just got me to think more about the type of sound I was producing. Uh, and I, I really had a lot of, a lot of work to, to get it to speak in a different way. You've been very active, uh, teaching people about improvised music as well. Can you talk about some of your efforts along that, those lines? Uh, yeah, it's, I've been teaching for a while now. Um, and I guess talking about that time around the mid nineties when I was starting to play with Steve, right around that time, I got a a full-time job teaching at the Eastman School of Music. So I actually left New York City for a few years and I was living up in Rochester. And that, that experience was, was really amazing. I got to work with incredible students, um, students that have gone on to to play great great music uh uh, some of them are still really good friends of mine it was a really spiritual experience in a lot of ways and uh it i don't know i i after that experience i thought of teaching in a in a different way i I always liked to teach but i never i had never taught in that kind of environment before and it felt very creative it didn't, it didn't feel like a chore at all. In fact, I'd, I'd always get to 
you know, the end of the month and, month and get a paycheck and say, wow, I get paid for this. Wow. That's, that's really something else. Um, so it, it, it really did feel like, uh, something that was enhancing my creative life as, as a, uh, as an improviser, as a composer. Uh, what was it about the environment in Eastman that, that made it that way? Well, for a while I was, I was allowed to teach the way I wanted to teach. Um, and, you know, I didn't really have any methodology and I could basically deal with it as I went. Um, and, uh, work with the students. Um, and, you know, we could, we could workshop music. We could talk about the music. Ideas would come forth. It was, it was very, uh, it was very active, just the way that everyone was participating. And uh, I always just encourage people to to be themselves, to develop their own voice. Uh, and that just felt good. It felt good. And it, and it also felt good that I could just teach from an enthusiasm for music, which I have. And I could share that and we could listen to music and talk about that. So it, it wasn't that different than what I do uh, as a... Uh, as a musician, um, you know, the things that really interest me. So I try to just bring those things into the, to the teaching realm. I wanted to, you know, continue doing that. So I started, I started the school for improvisational music, which is a nonprofit organization that's been in existence since 2001. Um, and the, the idea was pretty simple. Just get, get the right teachers in a room with the, the right types of students and let it just be about music. Um, you know, the nuts and bolts information is something that's, of course, useful, but that's something that uh, people learn in schools. And since that's, you know, that's the emphasis normally in a, a traditional jazz program. So we don't really talk about much stuff like that. Um, and it's mostly about music making and improvising and the mindset you need to be in and the creative process and all those uh, interesting things. In addition to Bida, which just came out, what are some of the other things that you have on your plate at this time? Some of the other projects that you've got going on? Um, 
the last few months, I've had a couple things uh, come out in addition to this. Uh, there's uh, a duo record with Fred Hirsch that came out in May, I believe, on Cam Jazz. Um, I'm also part of a collective uh, called Lark with Tom Rainey, Ingrid Laubrock, and Chris Davis. Uh, that's a group that just plays uh, um, uh, free improvisations, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, uh, and in terms of upcoming things as a leader, um, nothing right now. Uh, although I'm hoping to talk to Manfred soon about the next record. I definitely have some ideas about that. Um, and, uh, lots of things, uh, lots of interesting things as a side man. And, uh, also just tar- I started teaching at a New England conservatory. So that's kind of a new, addition to my life you mentioned being a sideman and you're a sideman in a very incredibly varied array of projects will you talk about some of the things that you're taking part in these days sure if i can remember them um well a really really interesting exciting thing is coming up uh actually the week that we are playing at the jazz standard for the record release uh which is a big band led by the incredible michael formanek uh Incredible bass player and composer, and uh, it's an incredible band. It's uh, I, I won't remember everyone, but um, I, mean, I can definitely speak to the trumpet players uh, since they're my brethren: um, Dave Ballou, uh, Jonathan Finlayson, Shane Ensley. Um, but uh, I, at the top of my head, Tim Byrne, uh, Chris Speed. Uh, yeah. Um, um, who else? Well, Toma, I think, is playing drums. Mary uh, Halverson is playing guitar. A bunch of different people. Uh, so that's really going to be special to have those types of people all in a big band. Uh, I did something similar to that. Um, we had a sim uh, big band that has played a couple times uh, over the past couple years. and It's, it's really interesting getting non-big band players in a big band uh, and I think this will be really special given Mike's uh, you know amazing compositional abilities so uh, that's going to be really nice um, I'm also in a trio led by Toma uh, Fujiwara uh, with, uh, and that trio is with Brandon Seabrook and we just uh, recorded a live record at Barbez um, I'm still playing occasional gigs with Uri Kane um, he just released a record based on uh, Gert Gershwin's music, so uh, we still play from time to time. Um, I'm in Michael Atisa's Spun Tree Quintet. That's a really great band. Um, I did a record with uh, Enrico Perinunzi uh, for Cam Jazz, and I think that's coming out sometime next year. And just did a quintet gig with Oren Evans at the Jazz Standard, and uh, he was excited about that, so maybe that'll happen some more. That was really nice. So. Uh, I keep busy. I've been really lucky over the years to have a, a nice, steady stream of things uh, to do as a sideman. So, knock on wood. Let's keep <laughs> let's keep it going. My guest is Ralph Alessi. The new album on ECM is called Bida, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for doing it, Ralph. Thanks, Jason.
That's music from Ralph Alessi's Baida. In fact, this very track that you're listening to right now is in the free MP3 section for members. To become a member of the Jazz Session, just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. It's five bucks a month, and you get free MP3s with every show. Plus, there were already six in there. So if you join today, I think I put two in there today, you'll get eight MP3s the moment that you join. This episode is brought to you by Innova Recordings, the label of the American Composers Forum. Innova releases creative jazz from the inside to the outside, Braxton to big band, Ligeti to Yao. Even the different drummer is on Innova. On the web at innova.mu. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. Their tune, In the Shadow of My Beer, is in the membership section. I don't know if you can hear that, but there's a dog with a squeezy toy in the background. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who made the Jazz Sessions logo. If you need a press release or a bio or a Wikipedia page, you'll find all of those things available for you for reasonable rates at cranerights.com, my new freelance operation. That's it for this edition of the Jazz Session. The new editions of the Jazz Session come out on the 1st and 15th of each month. So see you back here on November 1st, just two days before Bernie Crane turns 11 years old, if you can believe that. Until then, come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.